Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown. Where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and a culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music, the tall tales, true stories, and current goings-on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter and swim buck-naked in summer. Welcome to episode 30 of the Brown County Hour. This is Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the producers, and we're excited to present our latest show. As we often do here at the Brown County Hour, back when we had Bob Guston in to talk about the literacy program, we also interviewed him about his perspective on journalism. Bob, as we know, was the editor of the Columbus Republic, and he really has a lot to say on this subject. We talked to the local state winners of the National History Day and heard about their projects and experience in Washington, D.C. We have an interesting conversation with local singer-songwriter Barry Johnson. He'll be sharing his story and a little bit about his efforts to sell his songs in Nashville, Tennessee. And we'll listen to some of his music. There's a conversation with Rita Simon about the upcoming open house at the History Center, and we'll continue the conversation about the school board with John Mills. Speaking of John Mills, he got together with fellow potter Larry Pujot a while back in our studio, and we'll listen in as the two of them have a freewheeling conversation about pottery in Brown County. And once again, Dave Seastrom with the best of his Brown County essays and then a couple of poems from Chris Curtin and Gunther Flum. It's our pleasure to invite you to kick back and enjoy episode 30. Let's begin with Bob Guston on journalism. This is Dave Seastrom with the Brown County Hour, and we have Bob Guston with us, who is the former editor of the Columbus Republic, now retired and living in Brown County. And he's here this evening to talk about the state of journalism in the 21st century. Hi, Bob. Dave, how are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm good, and I know we've just opened a whole can of worms and a pretty big topic, but we'd love to hear what you have to say. Well, I have probably an old-timer's perspective on journalism. Uh, I, I've been a journalist, or I was a journalist, for 40 years. Started started in 1969, uh, the year I graduated from high school. That was the year we walked on the moon. Yeah. Uh, and I was a copy boy at the Colorado Springs Sun uh, at, at that point. I moved on from, from there to be a reporter and a photographer, a city editor, news editor, and finally managing editor and editor. Uh, worked in newspapers in Colorado Springs in western Nebraska, down in Evansville, and retired in 2011 from the Columbus Republic. I have to say that I'm a little bit nervous about the state of journalism in America today because I'm a, I'm a firm believer in newspapers and in local journalism. We have seen for the past four or five years a, a real economic downturn in the newspaper business. Uh, we have seen newspapers cut their staffs drastically in some cases. We have seen many newspapers go out of business. There are probably many reasons for that, for the decline in journalism. One of them is certainly the internet. There, it's quicker 
and faster and easier to get your news on the internet. And I think that's a fine place to go to get national and international world news. I think that the best journalism in the world is being reported there and is being reported on the internet. My concern is local news, which is the bread and butter of any newspaper. If you want local news on the internet and it doesn't come from a daily newspaper, then you really have to, I think, question the validity of that news. Anybody who wants to can put whatever they want to up on the internet, but that doesn't mean it's true. That stamp of factuality is, is I think, what newspapers have had going for them. As newspapers continue to dwindle in size and in number, I'm worried about where that news on the internet, that local news, is going to be coming from and how uh, accurate it's going to be. Advocacy journalism. And that's different. I don't think we experienced that when we were growing up. We did, but probably not in the mainstream journalism. Uh, there's always been advocacy journalism in, in newspapers, in political magazines. Uh, even some newspapers were, were advocates. And frankly, probably some of the best investigative journalism we've had throughout history has been started by people like Upton Sinclair, who was an advocate for improving conditions in the workplace. But the kind of advocacy I think you're talking about now is uh, is the guy on the soapbox and the yelling on the corner. Well, and it's <laughs> primarily focused in politics. That's right. That's right. I think that's partly why I am distressed by the weakening of strong local newspapers. The, the mid-sized papers, the small papers, good journalism takes place in those newspapers. They, ha they serve their communities. I think that the small newspapers are faring better now than the large metros. I think here in Brown County we have an excellent example of a good local newspaper. Now, the Democrat has won statewide awards, probably won more statewide awards in the past three years than any other weekly newspaper in the state of Indiana. So, Bob, I'm concerned about the corporate conglomerates gobbling up all of these local newspapers across the nation and its effect on journalism as it becomes focused by those corporations and their personal interests. I, I think you're, you're right to be concerned about that because one of the strengths of American journalism has been a diversity of voices, has been different ownership and different points of view. It is true that large corporations are buying more and more newspapers. However, most of those newspapers are the larger papers. Most of those papers are metropolitan newspapers that are being swallowed up by the big conglomerates. Newspapers have been very important. Now, there are many reasons that they are struggling right now. There's a Thomas Jefferson quote I'm often reminded of, and but Jefferson said something like, if I had to choose government without newspapers or newspapers without government, I would not for a moment hesitate to choose the latter. That's how strong one of the founders of our country felt about the need for an informed citizenry, and it's important. The only way that democracy can function. So it's been an interesting evolution. Uh, what do you see? What, do you, what does your gut tell you about the future for print journalism? I think print journalism will stick around. Uh, I think it, it will find ways to survive because I think enough people still enjoy reading the newspaper over their morning coffee. I know that looking at demographics, that it is older folks often who read the newspapers and, and the younger folks are getting their news from TV, from radio, from the internet. 
But I think as people age, newspapers continue to hold a, a spot. And especially you, as long as newspapers focus on reporting the local news accurately and passionately, I think newspapers will survive. I hope you're right. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming in. This is Chris Curtin with a poem called One Night Stand. Autumn struts into the room, calling attention to herself with too much makeup, two loud colors swinging her broad hips in an ostentatious public display, leaving little to the imagination. Loud, brassy, garish, and gaudy, full of herself, making impossible promises she has no intention of keeping. Now we present local singer-songwriter Barry Johnson. evening, we have Barry Johnson and his dog Charlie with us. Barry and I have been talking and he's had a fantastic, interesting career. You know, you've got your bio here, so let's start in 1968. You played drums in a band called The Dark Side? Yeah. Now that was before Star Wars, before Pink Floyd came out with The Dark Side of the Moon. So, so you defined Dark Side then? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I came from North Vernon. I grew up there, went through the sixth grade there, moved to Columbus in the seventh. This band, The Dark Side, approached me in the ninth grade and uh, to play drums for them because I was a drummer, and, and it, uh, it was great. We played all the way, well, for five years we were together. Do you and, still uh, play drums? Yeah, I still play drums once in a while. And uh, we did a show in Columbus called The Phil Brasket Show. It was a local TV show in Columbus, Indiana back in the early 70s. My guitar player had to remind me of it. I'd forgotten all about it. And then... Uh, and we did the Jerry Lewis Telethon in Bloomington. Did you get to meet Jerry? No, I didn't. But I met Gail Gordon, who was uh, Mr. Mooney on the Lucy show. Huh? He was on the show. And uh, you remember the Dodge cop, son? You know, the commercials, the Dodge commercials where that sheriff would pull him over. I've met him on the road a few times. <laughs> It, it it was a good experience. It was fun. Even even Gail Gordon helped us carry our equipment in. Even <laughs> so, uh, so the first time you were in a recording studio was 1974. That was here in Nashville. Is that Absolutely, correct? Don Cheats. It's called Little Nashville Recording. Don Cheats has uh, actually coined the Little Nashville Opry, the name. Okay. And uh, Don uh, was a great friend. Uh, took me in there. I recorded my first single there in 1980, and. Uh, <laughs> That's Charlie. Yeah, that would be Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, you, you mentioned Mellencamp earlier. We yeah. were talking about it. Mellencamp watched me record my first single in there. He was behind the board with Don watching me. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Now, now, this was an original tune that you had written. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And so that began your career as a songwriter. Yes, and, you know, uh, uh, on the flip side, of, it was called Sarah. On the flip side was Lonesome Town, the old Ricky Nelson, 1958. Okay. 
it was a, like a top seven for Ricky Nelson 1958 and uh, I got a lot of airplay more probably more airplay with that song than I did Sarah the one <laughs> so your cover your cover did better than your original tune then <laughs> yes ouch <laughs> So then in 1975, you moved to big Nashville and traveled mm -hmm. with Clover Willis on a yeah. tour bus. The guitar player for the dark side ended up playing with Clover Willis. And he called me, he said, you want to play rhythm guitar and, and do some of the singing with Clover Willis show. And, and, and it was fun. My first time living on a bus, traveling around the country. And, and I remember getting snowed in in Little Rock, Arkansas one time. I mean, and... And I love that you were on the Jim Gerard show. I grew yeah. up watching that show in Indianapolis. Yeah, so. that was fun. You know, I actually called that show myself and booked myself on there. Is that right? Yeah. Just so happens I got on there the day Susan St. James was on there, which was, wow, you know. She was beautiful and hot actress and was real friendly and took one of my CDs, or one of my uh, 40, 45s, excuse me. 45? Well, that kind of dates you. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I know what that is. That kind of dates me, too. Yeah. yeah, she took one home with her. Well, uh, so then so then you started flirting with Hollywood. You, well, and you became you know, an extra in the movies. And Well, I did. When I, when I was in Nashville, this lady that owned a recording studio was a godmother of SAG, which is Screen Actors Guild, and like, took a liking to me and, and got me started and sent me to an acting coach. And uh, it kind of evolved from there, I guess, you know. And, and he wanted to send me to Hollywood, but I, I got cold feet and didn't go. So you don't do any acting at all now? No, I did a little bit for a company out of Indianapolis. In 2005, I think it was, I got a call from Nashville, Tennessee. My agent down there, she said, Barry, would you like to audition for a Johnny Cash movie called Walk the Line? And I said, well, they picked you out of a lineup, whatever her you know, bios. And I said, sure. So Charlie Dog and I packed up and took off for Memphis, Tennessee for the day, and I auditioned, and, and it was fun, you know. Uh, I thought I had a shoe in when I left there, you know, because I heard the lady say I really liked that guy <laughs> when I left. But she said, the only thing that would keep you from getting the part is you're too tall. They wanted me to jump on stage and grab the microphone away from Joaquin Phoenix. Is that what it was? Is that it? Joaquin Phoenix? Yeah, I think so. I'd jump up and grab the mic from him and start singing. I was a prison inmate. They said, he's a short guy. So you would just, and Johnny Cash was a tall guy, so you would tower over him. So obviously I didn't get the part, I guess. Oh, so close. I know. Oh, man. That's this business. Well, after your flirtations with Hollywood, uh, you moved to uh, Daytona Beach. Yeah, I did a road show with Opryland USA in Branson, Missouri for six months. And I had a blast. That was fun. We did a two-hour show six nights a week in Branson. And on my night off, I played in a Chinese restaurant doing a solo act. <laughs> so, but but that, that, was a, that was a lot of fun doing that. And then I moved to Daytona from there, played a Holiday Inn for five years doing a solo act on the beach. Uh, living the good life, you know, and uh, now felt, is this what, your original tunes, or are you learning every Jimmy Buffett? Tune oh, you have to know a little bit of everything. I play anything from Alice Cooper to Merle Haggard, you know, pretty okay. much, you know, for thirty years. But, but I do originals too when I play. Yeah, and I did down there too. Yeah. The first song up is Charlie Dog. Yes. Tell us about that. Okay, Charlie Dog. Um, this is after I'd built a log cabin out at Lake Lemon when I moved back here, and. Uh, I decided to write a song for Charlie, and uh, I, I tell everyone when I play out that Charlie, Charlie wrote the song, and I just put music to it because he pretty much did. You know? 
So he's a singer too, then. Well, yeah, he's a, you'll hear him uh, singing on the song. Yes, okay. absolutely. And so it's it's all about him, and and uh, it's been a smash. Especially little kids love it. Little kids love the Charlie Dog song. He has his own CD, his own T-shirt line. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Monster, but sniffing couch potatoes, silent but deadly maker. Eats grass, throws it up, licks himself, sheds a lot. Loves a truck, loves to ride, pees on everything inside. Beggar, shake your hand so he can lick the dirty pans. Hates squirrels, flying bugs, loves to have his belly rubbed. Sleeps all day, hogs a bed, likes to roll in something dead. Toy in mouth, wants to play. In the morning, he laps my face. Place is a flower bed, chases cats up the tree, looks at me like, Where's my tree? Chick magnet loves to swim, chews up sticks, but in the end, he's my best friend. Oh, yes, he is. Charlie boy, get out of the flowers. This evening we have Rita Simon from the Brown County Historical Society. We're going to talk about the exciting new history center that's going up and all the things that they're involved in. Rita, let's begin by describing what is the Historical Society and what's your involvement in it. Well, I'm a volunteer. I've belonged to the Society for about 10 years. And the Historical Society was formed back in the 1960s here in Nashville. And President Hermie Wells was a member of the original. Ah. Historical Society. Hermie, I love that. Yes, that's what we called him when we went to school there. They have been instrumental in developing a museum at the community building right behind the courthouse, which came into our possession in the early 70s, and we developed that as a museum building. During the 70s, we brought in parts of two old Brown County cabins erected by using the old methods 
a cabin that's reflective of the 1850s in Brown County. And Dr. Ralphie's office was moved here from New Bellsville in the 1970s as well. Yeah, this is the pioneer village in town. And the History Center is going up right behind the Pioneer Village. Well, I think everyone in town has noticed it. <laughs> yes. Some people have wondered what that yellow building's going to be, but it's turning colors right now. They're putting up Brown County Stone. Well, I understand there's going to be a walkthrough, uh, a preview party on September 19th from 4 to 7 p.m., you want to talk about that a little bit? This is our chance to show people what's been going on because it's been under construction since early March. It will be a fundraising event because we still need to raise about $300,000 to have everything debt-free. Each person will be asked to make a $25 donation to the building fund and that donation will also make them a member of the Historical Society for the next year, 2015, and they'll get the first look of anybody at the inside of the building. Nice. Well, I know that uh, we meet here at the History Center. We walk past the collections. It's just going to be so great to be able to see it all properly displayed in the new building. That'll be pretty exciting. So I understand the, the archives are currently open. They are. The archives are open on Tuesdays from 1 to 4 p.m. and by appointment. We cooperate with the Brown County Genealogical Society. People who have the archives open are members of both groups and they will assist people in finding their Brown County roots. They also take appointments on other days if Tuesdays are not possible for people. Excellent. How can people join this organization? Do you guys have a website? We do. Our website is browncountyhistorycenter.org. Currently, our telephone number is 812-988-2899. We have monthly program meetings, and they're always on the first Monday of the month. Currently, we're meeting in the basement of the St. Agnes Catholic Church since our old building has been sold. The September program is about uh, the Brown County Blues, which was a Civil War infantry group. And then in October, our plan is to have the great-grandson of Colonel Richard Lieber talk about ah. the beginning of the Brown County State Park. Thank you so much for coming in, Rita. Thank you for having me. I hope everyone will follow the progress of the History Center in the paper and come join us on Friday, September 19th in Nashville. Now we pause for station identification. River Light Yoga now offers Janice Jaffe's Healing Sound Meditation in our Nashville studio. It's an exquisite weaving of voice, crystal bowls, Tibetan bowls, drums, and other instruments in intuitive improvisational meditation. 3 p.m. Sunday, September 14th, 3 p.m. Sunday, October 19th, and Sunday, November 9th. For more information, see riverlightyoga.com. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. This is Rick Fettig with the Brown County Hour, and to prove that we're ambidextrous and we can go left or right, we now have the Brown County Hour Fox News.
There was a report earlier this week that a woman was screaming as she was being killed in one of the local ravines. A young officer was dispatched, and when he arrived, he was so frightened by the noise that he heard, he called for a backup. Fortunately, it turned out, once the, another officer arrived with a infrared sensor, they were able to determine it was, in fact, a vixen fox. This just in, a vixen and her kits were sighted for the second year in a row under an abandoned lake cabin. And there were also many foxes sighted at the Brown County State Park on the last day the pool was open. I'd like to hear the interview with the local winners of the National History Day. This is Dave Seastrom with the Brown County Hour. It is our privilege to have with us tonight Zelton Kay and Elizabeth Collier. And they have just participated in the National History Day by creating videos on their specific topics. So let's talk about what is the National History Day. Elizabeth? Uh, National History Day is a nationwide history program where students from grades 4 through 12 compete uh, across the nation and they start from their regional onto their state levels. By doing uh, history projects, they choose a topic each year of their own choice uh, based on the national theme. They create either a, like a poster board or it's also called an exhibit. Um, there's also documentaries and uh, there's also performances as well as papers that can be written. So it's a nationwide program from all of the 50 states, plus a few of the affiliates like Guam, American Samoa, uh, as well as over in China, Shanghai. In June, they hold the National History Day, which is at the University of Maryland in College Park, Maryland. Well, let's start off with you, Zelton. Why don't you describe your project and what you did? Well, mine was an individual junior documentary about the First and Second Seminole Wars, which were a conflict between the Seminole Native Americans who li originally lived in northern Florida and the U.S. government. And so the U.S. government, during the First Seminole War, forced them into the Florida interior. Um, many Seminole did not survive. Now, it's true that the Seminole weren't just Indians. They were also escaped slaves and some, some white folks that joined them because they didn't fit in. Was that part of your discovery as well? Yes, the African-American slaves would escape from the Deep South plantations into Florida. So how did it turn out for them? Well, today they're the only tribe that is not under U.S. control. They've thrived and have casinos. They pretty much have a monopoly of the tourist industry in Florida. Um, they own the Hard Rock Cafe chain. Is that right? So, yeah, so they're, they're pretty successful today. Well, Elizabeth, what did you do? What was your project? My documentary this year about the Zoot Suit Riots in Los Angeles during uh, the summer of 1943. The Pachucos, or the second generation Latino American teenagers and children into the style of zoot suits. So it was their rebellion as being persecuted during World War II. So as they were not even old enough to participate in the war effort, they were just simply teenagers just wanting to have fun. They, you know, wore their fancy clothing and they'd go to dance clubs and movie theaters and they just wanted to have a good time. There was an uprising when the sailors who were stationed 
in Los Angeles and there was an entire week in the June of 1943 where uh, the sailors just simply attacked them for being Mexican-American and it didn't matter whether they were wearing a zoot suit or not. By the middle of the week there was 5,000 rioters who had invaded the city that came from as far as you know Las Vegas and all of California. Both of you made your own videos and did your own editing is that correct? Yes sir. How did you learn to edit? So I started using Microsoft uh, Movie Makers. I pretty much just learned on my own and I would go to History Day and watch other kids and once I got to Nationals I would sit in the finals room and I'd take my little notepad and I'd take notes and I'd study off of the other kids. And So you guys um, were really on your own? Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what about you, Zelton? I mean, this is this is your first one of these videos, is that correct? Yes, this is my first time ever doing History Day, so okay. it's pretty surprising I made it all, all the, way the way to the Nationals. <laughs> oh, that's, that's tremendous. How did you do in the contest? Well, I did not make it into the top 15, but I'm still happy. What about you, Elizabeth? Uh, I actually made it into the finals. I got 13th in the nation. So you're off to college next year, but Zelton, you're just getting started. Do you plan on entering again next year? This year, I'm going into eighth grade, and I'll be in Weed the People. Okay. So I'm not sure if I'll do it next year. We've but. we've had the some of the Weed the People here on the radio show, and that's an amazing program, too. The history pans out. You'll get to go to Washington, D.C. again. Do you have any final thoughts on the whole process and what it meant to you personally, uh, Elizabeth? I would be a totally different person if I hadn't have competed in History Day because I've learned that everything isn't about winning, and it's important to keep going in something that you love don't let anything stop you. It was so much fun for me to go out and to interview uh, World War II Rosie the Riveters and and, uh, get to talk to professors about their intake on uh, subjects and just learn the true details of all of these events and get to talk to the people who were actually there. I think participating in History Day teaches you so much about the real world. Well, Zelton, what about you? What did you get out of this? Improved my researching skills creative thinking just going to dc and being part of history day really had a big impact on me well this has really been tremendous and as someone who deeply loves history myself i'm very happy for you guys thank you so much for coming in and now back to our interview with singer songwriter barry johnson barry let's talk about while the night is young okay i wrote that about six months ago i guess Times have changed in country music, and I think you all realize it, that they call it hick hop and bro country now. Oh my. Yeah, it's changed since I was a writer there in the 90s. So I was trying to I'm gear... I'm not sure Ernest Tubbs would go with it. No, Ernest Tubbs would... He's rolling over in his grave, I'm sure. This is my attempt at uh, bro country and hick hop while the night is young. So uh, I'm gearing myself to... I mean, I, I really study the country music market. I listen every day. I write songs every day. I try to write every day of my life now. And I dedicate sometimes two hours, nothing's coming, sometimes 12 hours if something pops, you know. But every day I write, and uh, that's one of my geared towards what's going on. Girl, you got that physical attraction, the kind that always gets a male reaction. Yeah. I got a blanket and a bottle of wine I think you know what I got in mind Come on Count the stars before the sun wakes up Head for the barn where we can have some fun 
conclude our conversation with John Mills. We live in a culture that was transported from Appalachia. It's a kind culture. We don't have some of the problems in our school system that they have in the urban areas. The culture's different, and we benefit from that. So talk to us about what you think could be better in our school system. What what would help our situation? At a retreat, I said what I think we need to do for the kids who are the fast learners who've used up our offerings is let them create their own independent study program by soliciting the teachers that they think could help them with it and then assign them to a study hall but give them free range to go to the media center or the library or whatever you want to call it and learn as much as they can and ask questions of faculty who are willing to answer them and explore knowledge in whatever they're interested in instead of getting bored and turning to drugs and alcohol or dropping out of school. But I'm not sure anyone's listening to me. Well, we are, John. Thank you. We do quite well with the slower learners. We have all sorts of programs and extra funding for special education, people who have an identified special need, and we accommodate all of that, as we should. We don't really have a whole lot for the kids that have 
pretty much used up our offerings, and I, I'm sorry about that. I think we should change that. Well, on the downside, you alluded to state control as being a negative in terms of our local school system. You want to expand on that a little bit? They don't understand us. They, they're sitting at desks in a large city, or large by our standards. They think it's large. I could make, I won't say what I was thinking of. (laughs) I was sitting in a convocation in Indianapolis of school board members, and I ended up sitting next to a guy, and we got talking. He was a school board member from Carmel Clay. And I said, oh, we got different problems, don't we? He said, I kind of do. And I said, we're trying to teach something to a bunch of hillbilly. He said, we're trying to teach something to a bunch of spoiled rich kids. But we both agreed they were all fine kids. It was worth doing. I don't think the people sitting at those desks in Indianapolis really understand the experiences that our students have had before they got to school and before and after school now that they're in school. I don't think they understand. In some cases, there's not the home support that they need, and we can't really provide that for them. We try, but we can't really do it. Our kids have to spend anywhere up to a little over an hour on a school bus each way every day. They don't all spend that long, and we try to keep it to an hour, but we can't keep some of them to just an hour each way. Takes a big chunk out of your day, and there you are standing out by the side of the road at, what, 6.30 in the morning, and it's zero out, and it's dark. Sun hasn't come up yet. I will throw this out, though. There's an experience and a culture that develops on a school bus that I think is valuable. It's social contact that is not exclusive to the grade that you were in at school. So young and old, K through 12 are intermingling, and they all live in the same area, so they get to know each other. So I don't think it's a complete waste. Almost like a one-room school on wheels. Well, yeah. There you go. And especially if they're compatible and their school bus driver is engaging. And I think a lot of Brown County school bus drivers are like that. Some of the school bus drivers are very good at having an easy control of the kids. I've watched them some, and I really admire the ones who can keep the kids under control without shouting at them. Yeah, one of the tricks on my bus was to just slowly pull over to the side of the road and turn the radio to country music. (laughs) Worked every time. I wouldn't say a word. And the older kids would start hushing the the younger kids, and then finally when the bus had calmed down, I'd switch it back to rock and roll, and we would go on home. There you have it. I'm pretty confident that we do have the right people running our schools. I don't think there's anyone with the wrong attitude about it. Well, coming from you, that's that's good to know. Well, thank you very much, John. Is there anything else that comes to mind? That's probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in, John. Now we pause for station identification. River Light Yoga now offers Janice Jaffe's Healing Sound Meditation in our Nashville studio. It's an exquisite weaving of voice, crystal bowls, Tibetan bowls, drums, and other instruments in intuitive improvisational meditation. 3 p.m. Sunday, September 14th, 3 p.m. Sunday, October 19th, and Sunday, November 9th. For more information, see riverlightyoga.com.
You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Welcome back to Episode 30 of the Brown County Hour. Country Time by Gunther Flum. Country people take it slow, learn things they didn't know by listening to the things they find that help them with their peace of mind. They'll sit and watch a cloud go by and never once will wonder why. They always kind of feel proud they took the time to watch that cloud. Why, everywhere they walk, they smile. That's why it's called a country mile. Where other critters from the wood are in the country's neighborhood, so when you see a friendly face, it ain't just from the human race. Why, they can stretch a country hour to half a day to smell a flower. Why, you should see the time it took to catch them fishes in the brook. Why, they can fish from noon to eight and never once use hook or bait, and then continue through the night and never get them fish to bite. They never find their life a bore. Why, they can walk outside their door and always find the time to say, Why, it gets better every day. So everything that's in their view, they always find there's something new. Why, it might take a country week before a man and woman speak. So every time they say a word, why, you can bet it's always heard. And then you hear them kind of sigh whilst waiting for the next reply. So now I'm sure you got to fear how long they call a country year. And maybe why the final reason, years are measured by the season. Because country people like to know it's time it's going to rain or snow. That's why they're staring at the sky and watching that old time fly by. So you might want to have a look and think about the time this took. Because we just used a country minute while you was here and caught up in it. Back to Barry Johnson. So let's hear about... I wouldn't treat her bad, boy. Yeah, that's a that's the last thing I've written. I wrote that about a month ago, and it, it it just it's just one of those days I was writing, and it came to me. You know, you just reach your hand up in the air and grasp for ideas, you know, and that was one that came to me, and uh, and it, it came fast. You know, I wrote that one probably in two days. You know, one day you're gonna come home. She'll be packing her things. By then it's too late to swear to her That you're gonna change Once she walks out that door She's not coming back And if you really love her, boy You better think about that Hey 
Barry, thank you so much for Absolutely. coming in this evening. It's yeah, been a blast. Did. Yeah. We listen in as John Mills and Larry Pujol discuss pottery. Let's talk about being potters in Brown County. John should probably start since he was here first. Started in 68. Thought I'd do it for a year before I got serious, and I never got serious. Did it with a gas kill. I did it for 26 years that way. And then my wife and I went out west, first to Colorado, then to Arizona, and had to switch to electric because we were on a 100-year-old wooden floor. Stayed with electric when we came back here at the end of 2000. That's when we changed the pottery name to Brown County Pottery instead of John Mills Pottery. Before that, I hadn't felt like I'd earned the use of the title Brown County Pottery, which is a wonderful historic pottery that started in the 30s. By the end of 2000, I felt like I'd earned the name, and so I took it. Who were the potters involved in Brown County Pottery back in the day? Walter Griffith and his wife, right across the alley from my pottery now. It was their son who was the main potter at first. They made earthenware pottery. You can see a little bit of it in the Nashville House restaurant. Well, Larry, what about you? I had been going to uh, graduate school out in Washington State. My wife and I decided to leave. We traveled around for a while, and I came through Nashville, I think it was December in 1976, and I had been traveling and I was pretty broke. So I was trying to figure out how to make some money so I could keep moving on. So I rented a little shop, and my rent was $85. Wow. No so heat, no running water. <laughs> no running water? No. No, that's... I used, to get, I used to get my water over at the leather shop next door. Okay. And then eventually we, well, we hooked up some water. <laughs> in a Brown County sort of way. In a Brown County First sort of way. First we built a porch, and then we added onto the porch, and then or enclosed the porch, and then we added some water to it. But uh, So I was there, and pretty primitive, and built a kill out in the back, got to know John. Uh, coincidentally, the potter that I was studying with in Washington, a guy by the name of Carlton Ball, he was good friends with Carl Martz, who was a pretty famous potter in this area, and also te he was teaching at IU at the time. So when I came back, I got to know the Martzes. So I stayed in Nashville and uh, made pots, uh, high-temperature stoneware and porcelain. In the beginning, I had your typical Nashville business situation. I'd make a lot of money in the fall and say, hey, honey, let's go to Florida for a couple months. <laughs> go to Florida, come back broke, and start over again. So, I still don't have water in the shop. We carry it in a watering can. But that works. And we do have heat, however. Carl yeah. Martz was my major professor over at Indiana University in graduate school. For me, it was, it was great because I didn't have any money. I started my career here. And gradually, once I had kids and I got a little more serious about it, I started thinking that I needed to make money more than 90 days a year. And then uh, I just decided that I wanted to uh, uh, wholesale. I bought a house and large auto garage on it and uh, turned that auto garage into a studio and made pots there for almost another 20 years. And now you're in public service. Right. Well, when my kids went to college, I thought, God, I need to do something else. What am I good at? Let me see. I'm pretty good at not making any money. Maybe I ought to go into the not-for-profit world. And that's exactly what I did. How is the clay here? Is, is there decent clay that could be used? It'll fire to about 2,000 degrees. You'd make an earthenware. I believe that the first Brown County pottery did use at least some of it. And the Brown County Hills pottery used some. He stopped in the shop as they were folding up. And he said, well, we say we use Brown County clay, but, you know, we add enough of it so we can say that. Uh, mostly they used a commercial clay called Red Art. And I use that as the darker clay in my mix along with the fire clay. 
I used local clay probably the first five years I was here. I, I got premixed clay, but I'd go over to Clay City. But uh, they dug their clay there, and they, it was pretty good clay. I just get fire clay from Missouri, which is an extremely high melting point clay. It's used to make fire brick. I add the red clay from Ohio to it to make the color more interesting. That's where the clay is left bare. Of course, there are glazes over the large part of it, a glaze being glass melted on the surface. Both mixed our glazes from just raw chemicals. Carl taught his students how to calculate the chemistry on a molecular level, and most of the students didn't want to bother, but I loved it. Carl was gratified to have a student take to it. It gives you better predictive ability as to the melting, the surface texture, as well as color. And then there's always the cost. It's a lot cheaper to make your own glazes than to buy them commercially. Oh, so, oh my God. And I have to say that I always admired John because I don't think anybody was more frugal in making his clay and mixing his own glazes. You know, his uh, cost to profit ratio had to be pretty good. My glazes average $4 a gallon. Do you have any idea what they pay for a half pint of glaze at American Art Clay Company? Yeah, well, I do, yes. What? Uh, that's like $25, $30. <laughs> That's not a gallon that he's talking about. No, no. Yeah, you can't dip a large piece of pot in a little pint of glaze, can you? If you're going to do it and make money, you, you know, if you can make your clay and you can make your glaze, you're, you're better off. Yeah, when something goes wrong, I can get right on it and change it. Well, and you've got a finger in the pie all the way along, so you know where the problem is. Sometimes you don't, and that's part of the fun. Is <laughs> when things blow up in your face, now you got a problem to solve. Well, you got to love a craft that can occasionally involve an explosion. Pyromaniacs, yeah, that's yeah. what we are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. pottery maniacs. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. Dave Seastrom brings us another essay. In just about every way I can imagine, Brown County is a wonderful place to live. We're famous for our geography, and we're host to the largest contiguous forest in the state. These are things that bring the tourists here, and they certainly add something special to the mix. I myself was attracted to the land and the beauty of the forest, but it was the people who made me stay. It hasn't always been a smooth ride. From the founding of our state in 1816 until the early 20th century, the county was covered in virgin forest, some of the last of a once vast forest land that stretched between the East Coast and the Mississippi River. The trees were so huge they were nigh on impossible to work with. Four to six feet across and sometimes 200 feet tall, it took a lot of work to clear a field or make a cabin. In the way of progress, the train arrived in the early 20s and completely changed everything. In the beginning, people were happy to see the train come to Brown County. There was the promise of jobs and travel and goods delivered from the Sears catalog. It meant you could order a fancy wood stove and do away with your inefficient smoky fireplace and all you had to do was drive the wagon down to Helmsburg to pick it up. For the first time in our history, there was a way to haul our logs to the market. There was a mad rush to become part of the logging industry, and those who weren't felling trees with two-man misery whips could sell things to the loggers and the sawyers. Overnight, Helmsburg became the center of activity. There were several sawmills that employed hundreds of locals, either in the forest cutting, skidding, and transporting the logs to the mill, or in the mills themselves sawing lumber and loading railroad cars. Saturday night in Helmsburg was something indeed. It was a big barn dance that attracted folks from all around. The musicians struck up the bow and the singing and laughter filled the hall as everyone danced the night away. 
These were prosperous times, and the whole county benefited. With money to spend, it seemed as though the good times were here to stay, and this was such a good idea. But prosperity depended on the trees that were being completely removed as fast as technology would let them. I never had the privilege to speak with someone who lived through those times. The stories I've heard are all secondhand. I imagine there was a point when everyone knew what was coming. As the forest was turned into a graveyard of stumps and the hills bled topsoil, Brown County began experiencing our greatest ecological and financial disaster in modern history. Long before the last trees were cut, the jobs began to disappear, as one mill after another ran out of wood. By the time the work was finished, so was the forest, and all of the life it used to contain. The displaced sawyers and loggers returned to work the land that would no longer support them. The poor soils didn't produce much, and the wildlife that fed several generations no longer existed. There were no jobs, and people left the county in droves. By the beginning of the Great Depression, the county lost about 70% of its population. There wouldn't be a return to the original numbers until the late 70s. The people who stayed were tough. They had to be. This was as hard as anyone could imagine, but few who hung on began rebuilding. There were massive efforts to undo the forest devastation, and millions of trees were planted. As the abandoned lands slowly recovered, the state forests were established. White-tailed deer from Michigan were reintroduced, and 100 years later, the land is on its way to recovery. This is a story of well-meaning people who thought they were utilizing a natural resource to the fullest. I'm sure they love the forest, and its clean water, and abundant wildlife. I'm also sure few folks thought about the long-term consequences of their actions. After all, the trees will regrow. And they did. Only not in their lifetime. Sadly, they gave away their future for short-term gain. And at the time, there was a huge national outcry to protect what wilderness was left. And a generation of Americans said, never again. Today, a hundred years later, the memory of those times of devastation have faded, and we have the luxury of taking the remaining forest lands for granted. There's a general assumption the forest is protected, and we'll never see that kind of wholesale damage to the forest our ancestors knew. I wish this was so. For the same reasons that motivated our ancestors, the state has decided the true value of the forest could be counted in the dollars they harvest. We're about to experience a modern version of the clear cut that completely changed the county. They don't call it that anymore. They're using words of science to justify the pursuit of the bottom line. Unlike times past, we have the opportunity to study the situation and decide for ourselves whether we agree with the new plan that will change so much so quickly. Imagine Brown County without her beautiful, uninterrupted state forests. In their place will be highly managed tree farms, and the wilderness will become a thing of the past. If you are interested in more information, check out our webpage at browncountyhour.com woodwatch. This is Dave Seastrom with the Brown County Hour. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to episode 30 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and broadcast the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. You can stream this or any of our shows from our website, browncountyhour.com.
And while you're there, be sure to check out our Woodwatch page devoted to informing the public about the situation our forest lands are facing. And be sure to like us on Facebook. This show was produced by Jeff Foster, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, and Dave Seastrom. And we would like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. It's a joy to have you on board. listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County. Oh